The miracle of the loaves and the fishes, the miracle of feeding 5,000 people is, I'm going to posit this morning, the most important story about Jesus that we know. Even more important than that all-time favorite, the Good Samaritan, and I say this only because the miracle of the 5,000 is one of the only, one of the few stories that shows up in all of the Gospels. All of them pick it up. Here it is in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel. Late in the day, his disciples came to him and said, this is an isolated place and it's already late in the day. Send them away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat for themselves. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. I'm going to teach you a lesson. But they said to him, should we go off and buy bread worth almost eight months' pay and give it to them to eat? He said to them, how much bread do you have? Take a look. And after checking, they said, five loaves of bread and two fish. So he directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, he took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves into pieces, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled 12 baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish. About 5,000 had eaten. That's the story. It shows up in all four Gospels. It even shows up in variations in some of the apocryphal Gospels and some of the lost Gospels, uh, including the recently discovered Gospel according to Bryce, Jesus' financial planner. He takes a little bit of a different tack on it. He picks up on the, on the apostles' worry about their things not being enough. And after the crowd had departed, the story goes, the disciple called Bryce pulled Jesus aside and said, neat trick, man, but you know you can't keep doing that, right? Okay, there's, uh, there's only so much bread and so much fish to go around. And, you know, we're really reliant on the fishing and the baking industries in this country to kind of keep the whole economy boosted. And you're just going to undermine the whole thing if you keep doing that. And already, nobody wants to work anymore. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of people out of work. And the economy's going to collapse. And you're just making poor people, more of them, Jesus. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? More poor people, Jesus? And Jesus spoke unto Bryce, saying, Bryce has picked up on the wrong part of the message in the gospel. Thankfully, Bryce is also somebody I just made up, so we don't have to worry about that. The disciples are worried about their not being enough. They are engaging in what we would call today the scarcity mindset, the scarcity mentality which is a concept that came initially out of the work of uh, Stephen Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He was one of the first to speak about that. But it's not just a throwaway concept for some kind of life coach. 
psychologists have actually done the studies around this and, and proven that this is, this is an actual mental state and it has actual detrimental effects for people. It's the focus on a lack of resources to the extent that everything must be conserved and used strategically and that focus is the only thing that can be focused on by people. It comes about uh, because people have experienced poverty in their lives or there's been a history of poverty, poverty in their families and that scarcity mentality gets passed generation to generation. We learn how to manage money from our parents, don't we? I certainly did, which is why I don't manage the money at home. Uh, <laughs> It's, it comes about because of uh, financial extremities or trauma. You had a great job and you lost it. Or you lived with somebody who was financially abusive, took control of your money. And it's not just a, it's not just a financial concern. Uh, serial dieting can lead to a scarcity mentality because we can focus just on what we can't have and not the things that we can. And so we get into cycles of overindulgence because we're worried about that thing and then feeling regret and shame because we work our diets. And it comes about because of societal expectations. You've got you've to have a certain kind of career and you've got to make a certain kind of money and you've got to drive a certain kind of car and you've got to look a certain kind of successful to be taken seriously by other human beings in this world. And it comes when we worry about the future. When we are so worried about what we don't know about the future that we get hyper-focused on what we know now, and we can't even think about it. That's one of the biggest results of entering into that scarcity mindset. We become so hyper-focused on the one thing that's causing us the biggest problem that we don't have the mental bandwidth to deal with anything else. And psychologists who have done the research give it as a given that we have limited resources just in our mental capacity, in our cognitive ability, in our, in our bandwidth, as they call it. So I'm so worried about living paycheck to paycheck that all I can do is make decisions about right here and right now, even if they're going to set me up for even worse problems in the future. That's how the payday loan industry works. I got caught up in that cycle for a while in my younger days. And so we get into this mindset where we can't think about the future. We just have to make decisions right here and right now about how we're going to survive next minute to next minute. And so this mindset leads to hoarding everything we have, our finances, our time, our energy, our attention, And in turn leads to a sense of low self-esteem in ourselves. I'm not successful. I'm not meeting up to the demands of the day. I'm a failure. And impaired decision-making, that inability to focus on the future. 
if we only or over-focus on the immediate, there's no capacity or a very limited capacity to plan for the long term, to put any kind of thought into the future and what we don't know about it. Researchers at Yale and Harvard have posited, although they don't have the hard data, this is anecdotal from them from research, that the 2008 financial collapse contributed more to a general scarcity mindset in the entire population here, because we all saw how fragile the systems were. We were forced into a scarcity mindset by the realities that we saw. And I would argue that the last three years with the pandemic took that, took that anxiety and multiplied it by a number with a lot of zeros after it. Scarcity is what we have entered into to just cope to preserve ourselves and what we think we have and what we think we don't have. And I'm just going to say that's okay. That's absolutely natural. I'm not judging anybody. I'm certainly not going to judge myself because I know I've fallen into that same mindset in the last 10 years or more. But it is, I think, one of the contributing factors to when we look at this country, we notice a general sense of selfishness over selflessness. And where we are really limited, what we are really poor in is the spirit of generosity at all in the belief that we can make a difference. So we tell the story of the loaves and the fishes time and time again. And it's a very important story, as I said, because it epitomizes the lesson Jesus was trying to teach to the people over and over again. Walter Brueggemann, one of my all-time favorite biblical scholars and theologians, says that the main focus of Jesus' ministry was talking to people about the necessity of the neighborhood. He throws away the kingdom language and talks about the neighborhood. Who is my neighbor? How do I treat my neighbor? How do we keep the neighborhood together? In the loaves and fishes stories, the disciples are worried they don't have enough, that they don't have the capacity to feed 5,000 people, and that's all they can see. Send them away, Jesus. We don't want to deal. And Jesus says, no, no, you feed them because he knows the capacity they have within themselves. And so they discover they have a few loaves and fishes, and then a miracle happens, and everybody gets fed, and there's stuff left over. And for those who like to approach 
the biblical stories with a little more of a rational mind. We like to interpret the miracles as being much more human events. And so we talk about this story as Jesus inspired everybody to share, which is great, but also still not quite the point. If we're looking for the real human miracle in the story, we turn to the story as it is told in the Gospel of John. Because John is the only one who gives us the little boy. The other three Gospels, it's just this is what we scraped together. In John, a little boy comes forward with his lunchbox. And that's the miracle. Here is a boy. Laura Jean Truman is an ordained chaplain and writes a, a, a biblical interpretation blog on the patheos.com platform. And she puts the question this way, when we read that moment, who does he think he is? Who in their right mind, what kind of person sees 5,000 hungry people and thinks, I should volunteer my lunch. That's a big leap. But the little boy steps forward in the spirit of enough. And enough is what we're really striving for in this day and age. And enough is where we are really poor and we really start to feel scarce just in our own selves. Truman writes, we want to make sure that we have enough before we show up. We want to make sure that we've got it right, that we are perfect before we show up. And if we don't have enough and if we aren't perfect, we tend to bury our talent in the ground. We tell ourselves we'll try again tomorrow when circumstances are more favorable to us being successful in our act. We tell ourselves a lot of things to avoid our shame. My gifts are too small to be useful. The world isn't missing out when I'm silent. The world doesn't need my bag lunch. There is too big a gap between what I want to bring and what I'm able to bring. We feel all those gaps deep down in our bones. But here's the thing. It's impossible to show up perfectly. The only way to show up is exactly as we are right now. So the boy steps forward and offers his lunchbox, and for a moment, everybody goes, oh, that's so cute, but who does he think he is? And yet, either the rational human miracle occurs that everybody's inspired to bring forth what they have, and somehow there's food enough for everybody and even leftovers, or Jesus performs an actual miracle. It doesn't matter because the miracle, either way, is that somebody came forward with a spirit of abundance. Somebody came forward with a spirit of abundance. 
Truman goes on to write, our only two choices are not showing up and showing up to the raw hunger of the world with only a bag lunch we packed the night before. What happens, though, when we show up despite feeling too small, too imperfect, too inadequate, what happens is the mystery of grace. When this kid refuses to factor in the gap between the need and what he had and refuses to listen to his heart's drumbeat of shame that says it's ridiculous to offer something so inadequate, when this little boy shows up anyway, the not enough that he had becomes enough. Showing up is enough. Grace doesn't come into the world any other way. I want to remind you, she says, that it's okay that you give up some days. It's okay that you're human. And that it's not just okay. It's enough. What you don't have is enough. We're looking at our own future right now. It's high on the topics of conversations we're having here in this beloved community that we are forming together. And there is a heck of a lot we don't know. There's a whole lot of I don't know out there, which is frightening in and of itself. So it's natural if we just wanted to focus on the here and now because it's knowable that we just get by from day to day because we know what to do with it and then we don't have to worry about what if it all runs out? What if all the money runs out? What if all the people stop coming? What if we don't have anybody's attention anymore? What if it all goes away? To fall into that scarcity mentality is natural when we're facing times in the way that we are right now. It's all based in the fear that we don't have enough and that we won't have enough. But the real fear is that we ourselves are not enough. That's the reality we're trying to avoid. But here's the thing about building beloved community. Here's the thing about church in general. All of the commodities that church has on hand, that beloved community has on hand, the ones that matter most, do not deplete. Like we hear in our Time for All Ages version of the story today, the more that gets put in, the more you share, the more you love, the more comes back into the world. We don't have reserve tanks outside the building labeled love and grace and just church in it that we have to worry about filling up every season so that we can get by. They just renew because we are putting our own into it. Because here's the deal, in, in, the, in the matters that are important to what we value in our community and to the world that we are trying to build and the future we are trying to face, no single one of us is a warehouse of what is needed 
to move into the future, to build the world we're dreaming about. We are not the coffers of love and grace and beloved community. We are the conduits for the things that are already there, for the reason we gathered together in the first place. And that's scary in and of itself, to realize that we are channels for things that are so much bigger than any of us. Big love, big grace, beloved community that doesn't have a fence around it. I'm supposed to channel that? Whew. But that's what we've been called to do all along. That is ultimately the whole reason we gather together, is to allow the spirit of whatever it is that holds us together in love and in grace to flow through us. Not so we run out of it, but so it reaches more and more people within that community. Whatever this future is, it's going to require all of us, all hands on deck, to be willing to be free and fluid with the gifts that we have, with our time, talent, and treasure, as we like to say in the stewardship world, but also with our, our wisdom and our work and our joy. We have to be open to channeling all those things we value, both within the community and out into the world that we want to draw into community. And it does us no good to do this going forward in a scarcity mindset because all that does is leads us to hoarding. And when we hoard the values we say are our values have no value. If we're hoarding love, if we're hoarding grace, if we're hoarding joy, has no value because it's not going anywhere and it's not doing anything. We've got to be willing to be free and fluid. What's coming next does not require any single one of our perfection. Does not require any single one of us to have the solution to the puzzle. We are not required to solve the whole thing on our own. It just requires us to be generous with our presence, with our capacity to channel all that is good about what we are, and to accept and to embody deeply that what you have, that what you are, is enough. Maybe so.